You're listening to audio from St. Luke Church in Lexington, Kentucky. If you'd like to learn more or donate to this ministry, please check out our website at stlukelex.com. great day. I'm so glad you are here, and I just feel privileged to get to walk this road with you, so thank you. Um, We're talking about God being in search of us, and last week we took a look at creation, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and today we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 3, dun, 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 the fall. Let's read it together. Here we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, last week we learned that Christianity is not our search for God. Rather, it is the history of of God's search for us. Ever before there was space and time, God desired to love and to do life with a people. And so in the beginning, the beginning of God's search for us, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we recognized last week is that creation, we tend to make it a how-to kind of story. And really what it is, it's a who story, that God created all things and that this God is ultimately in charge over all, and at the center of creation is a choice. Will we trust God? Will we trust that God has a good plan? Will we have faith and trust in God that uh, he knows better than we do? And that choice, of course, is framed uh, by a, a simple scripture that says, you can eat of any tree that's in this garden, save for one. How many people know it would be a whole lot 
better to just have one family rule. Are you with me? Exactly. And so that's where the story really gets challenging for us. What do we do with Adam and Eve and talking serpents and fruit and so on along the way? And, and I want to frame this up uh, by talk, using a few words along the way, words like literal, symbolic, and then the word living. And this affects very much how we view Scripture. To be sure, there are very much literal things that are written, in fact, plenty of them in Scripture. Like there are commands, right? God says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and don't murder people. That's not a suggestion, friends. I mean, that's, that's a command, right? It's literal. But there are also moments in Scripture or passages in Scripture that have a whole lot of imagery. The book of Revelation, for example, would be a good one. Or Daniel's visions. Or we might talk about Jesus' parables. Or the idea when Jesus says, hey, if something's causing you to sin, cut it off or gouge it out. Considering most of us here today have most of our faculties, I suspect we're not reading that passage literally. Are we tracking? Okay, good. Now, there's uh, some school of thought that, well, really, it's just all symbolism. Now, the struggle with that is to be sure there are moments in Scripture where there is great symbolism, but if everything is symbolism, well, Scripture just becomes a book of suggestions, not really worth following. So what I want to offer you today is a third way of looking at it, and that's by using the word living. The Scriptures are living and authoritative for our lives. And what I mean by that is this. I want you to recognize that the events of Scripture are inspired by God. The writings of Scripture are inspired by God. And then as readers, we're inspired by God to read these words because they're living and authoritative for our lives. It's not a book of suggestions. To be sure, there's commands, and there's a whole lot deeper understanding. And the beautiful way of looking at the Scriptures in being living is that they're applicable to us in every stage and era of life. Are we tracking? It's not just so much what God said then or what God says now. It's what God says for all of time, because as much as we talk about God as a God who is unchanging, so is his word. And his word has plenty to say to us at every age, at every stage in life. The texts, the events, and the readers are all inspired by God. And the reason I say this to you is that as we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the story of creation, recognizing that God was looking for a people to love and to do life with, and then Genesis 3, which is the story of the fall, we have a whole lot of information there, and we're left with a whole lot of questions. Perhaps the biggest of them is, what do we do with people and fruit and trees and talking snakes? And so here's the thing. If we look at it only literally... Well, then it becomes a scripture that we either agree with or disagree with and discard it. And if it's only symbolic, it becomes some kind of Freudian deal about our own insecurity and evil that tempts us. And really, sin isn't so much evil that we do, but a misuse of freedom. And Eden becomes this mythical place that we try to get to in life. So what I want to do is take a living approach to Genesis 3. And let's frame it up like this. If you want to know what God's desire or intent is, read Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to know the way the world is supposed to be, after you watch the 6 o'clock news, read Genesis 1 and 2. And in those verses, you'll recognize God's intent for all things. 
to love a people, to do life with them. This is God's creation. This isn't our world. This is God's world. And then if you want to know where it took a turn, then read Genesis 3. And you'll recognize that in the fall, this fall isn't just a story that happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but it's a story that very much happens in our lives today. And the beauty of it is this verse. God goes looking for the people and says, God goes looking for the people and says, See, when I think God went looking for the people, he didn't go, where are you? I think he went, where are you? And this is the beauty, the beauty of God's search for each one of us. I want you to remember that all of this is happening in the center of creation. God's intent, God's command, literally, this isn't a suggestion. God says, quite simply, there's one family rule hey, I made all this because I love you. I want to do life with you. It's yours. Here's the deal. There's one tree, and if you eat it, you're going to have the knowledge of what's good and evil. You can't have that. That's mine. That's that's the boundary line, right? You're here, and sorry, this is my deal. This is my creation, and that's where your power stops, and mine continues on infinitely. So don't break the family rule. Trust me. I mean, faith is about trust, right? At the heart of it, God is looking for us to trust him, to have faith that he knows better than we do, and to be okay with that. And there's really no need to search for more. And yet, what history shows us is that things change. And that's the introduction of a serpent, which is kind of gross. Now, serpents in the ancient world are the gods, Recognize this. They're the gods. They're the ones who guard the boundaries of creation and eternity. Their skin sheds, so there's in some way uh, this renewal or restoration, or some would even say resurrection kind of idea, but yet they crawl on their belly, so they're very unclean. In fact, the the book of Leviticus addresses this. In the ancient world, if you recognize the influence of ancient Egypt, the serpents are worshipped. They're feared. They have magical powers, these kinds of things. They control life and the human passage of time. But the Bible's dealing with snakes or serpents is very, very different. Recognize they're part of God's created order. It isn't that the serpent appears out of nowhere. Rather, the serpent is someone created or something created by God. That's part of God's creation. That's under God's command. Now, what happens is very fascinating. In fact, If we were to go back to Genesis 2.25, one verse before where we read today, you'll notice the scripture says this, and the man and his wife were both hubba hubba. And they were not ashamed. Now, naked um, presumes a certain kind of innocence or naivete, yes? I mean, perhaps your child uh, at age two and getting out of the bath with the door open and the screen unlocked, decided to run down the street and say, hey, everybody, here I am. Have you had that moment? Or perhaps you've seen somebody else's child do such a thing. And the reason is simple, because they're innocent, right? They're naked. It doesn't really bother them at all. And hey, in the middle of August heat, it's a whole lot cooler that way. And yet what we find in Genesis 3.1, it picks up and says, now the serpent was more... The word for naked and the word for crafty are the same word. 
So there's something about the serpent's craftiness that is going to prey upon the innocence or naivete of those of the man and the woman, their nakedness, their innocence, their naivete. And look at what happens. He says to the woman, did God, and the word for God there, it's not Lord God. Lord God, the, the, the word Lord uh, Yahweh is the personal name for God, the God whom we have relationship with, who loves us and wants to do life with us. It's not, it's not Lord God. The serpent just says, did God. It's kind of like saying, hey, did that dude really say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And notice how the woman responds. The woman says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God, again, not Lord God, the God who we have personal relationship with, but just God. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And then then adds, but is that part of the command? No. So somebody's presuming their own wisdom and changing the family rules. God is becoming less than God. And all of a sudden, the serpent's craftiness is beginning to take over. And here's the bigger part of the story that we miss. Ladies, you're going to love this part. Because the woman tends to get blamed. Are you with me? In fact, in the ancient world, the women always led the procession to the tomb. Did you know that? And the reason was they were the first one to fall. And yet what the scripture begins to show us is, is Adam out playing golf? Is he at Monday night football with the boys? No, he's standing right there and says nothing. Nothing. Nothing to protect the woman whom he is in relationship with. And he does nothing. Guys, there might be a message in there for us. We're given authority by God. And yet, how often do we say very little along the way? So the man and the woman, there we go. Things have changed. And yet the beautiful part is this. After they decide to eat the fruit, notice what happens. God comes and says, That's it. See, that's the good news. Now, do we think that God didn't know where Adam and Eve went? I mean, really. Do you think he went, oh, those kids, they took off. I'm so shocked. I sent them off to ranger school, and now their camouflaging techniques are so good, I couldn't even find them. Of course not. He knows where they're at the entire time. So something is happening here. And when we talk about God and God's search for us, this is absolutely huge. Because in the ancient world, the gods are sun and moon and stars and serpents. And here's the thing. When people mess up, not only do they not have a relationship with those people, but there's no way that the gods of the ancient world would ever go after the people who denied the commandments that they were given in the first place. And yet we have a very different picture of God here, don't we? The children, they break the family rules. And yet, rather than punish them immediately, what does God do? God runs after them and says, where are you? Here's why that matters, friends. I think our tendency is to say, well, we love that New Testament Jesus. He's so loving and good, but that Old Testament God, who? 
And what, I, what instead you see really here at the very beginning when everything goes wrong is what? It's a picture of grace. God's character is unchanging. God is and will always be a God of love and grace and mercy and truth. That's not changed. And so when the people... The man and the woman, Adam and Eve, disobey. This God comes after you. In the ancient world, it doesn't happen. You can't say, well, I reject this passage because I don't buy talking snakes. Or you can't say, well, it's a Freudian kind of a deal. What we have to say is, here's the thing. In some way, when I read this passage, it reminds me of one important truth. And it's this. I am Adam. Or I am Eve. Because we've all done it, haven't we? And so that's the question is, where are you today? Are you hiding from God? And why are you hiding? For 500 years now, we've really changed the way that we understand who we are as human beings and this whole idea of sin. In fact, before the Enlightenment, before the 1500s, People believed that they were caught up in this cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and the devil, and prayer was very much a part of not just a once a day or once a week kind of routine, but an every minute of the day reality. People prayed for God's protection and guidance and for God to overcome evil and to beat sin out of the world and so on and so forth, and they carried relics and crosses and crossed themselves. And now, well, humans, we have power. We can make sense of the world. It's fascinating that we have lots of know-hows, but we've lost sight of the know-who. People are good. They just do bad things occasionally. And rather than ask one another for forgiveness when we hurt each other, we tend to just say, well, you know, my bad. And look, I don't want to go back to the 1500s. Are you with me? I mean, indoor plumbing is fantastic. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. But I also want you to realize this misses the point of Genesis chapter 3. What Genesis 1 and 2 tells us in God's search for us is that God created us good and in his image for relationship with God. And what Genesis 3 tells us is this. Somewhere along the way, just like Adam and Eve, we've chosen to hurt God and to hurt one another. How many of us became a master of that this week? The deal is we are Adam and Eve. This isn't a story that happened in a galaxy far, far away and a long time ago. This happens every day. And the hardest part is this. Our instinct isn't to run to God. It's to run from God. Are you with me? Here's how I know this is the truth. I've seen it in my own life. And I was reminded, and I cleared this story with Luke before I share it of exactly how this works. Luke has always loved, my son Luke, has always loved golf and hockey, those two things. And uh, when he was three years old, a little boy, he wanted a hockey cake for his birthday. So mama, being the great mama that she is, went to the store and had this hockey cake ordered for him. And she brought it home on his birthday and said, here it is, Luke. And he wanted to look at it for a long time. And then he wanted to taste it. And so mama says, hey, here's the deal. I'm going to leave this on the counter. I want you to just 
let it be until dinner time, and you can have all the cake you want. It's your birthday uh, tonight after dinner. Just let it be. Well, sure enough, human instinct begins to take over, right? Because there's one family rule, and the family rule is don't touch the cake. And so Luke, using all of the know-how that he has, begins to craft his way to pulling that cake slowly off the counter. And you know what happens? The laws of creation happen, called gravity. And so what was created good at the Kroger Bakery becomes fallen and a mess. And just like Adam and Eve, what did Luke do? He went and he hid. And his sister, Sarah, is so loving. What did she do? She went and hid with him. And look, cakes can be fixed, right? So what are my, what, what, what's dad going to do? I'm going to go find the kid. And that's what God does for each one of us. We are Adam and Eve, friends. And here's the thing. Our hiding is just more subtly nuanced or more complex as time gets forward. We hide behind other things like money or our pride or our ego or sex or even our jobs become a hiding place. Because if I just work a little harder, I'm not going to have to deal with the things that are going on in my life. And the good news is this. The grace of God is this, that God comes searching for us and says, where are you? The struggle, though, is that our sin leaves its mark on the world, doesn't it? I mean, it's a world in chaos if you haven't watched the news lately. The hard struggle is this. There are no good people. Just one. His name's Jesus. He died on a cross and rose again on the third day. What you have are people who are created good. But left to our own vices, we want what we want. And this is the reason we have wars and viruses and starvation and tools that are meant to bring us together like an automobile becomes an instrument of road rage. Or phones which are intended to connect us becomes a tool of isolation and escape. Creation turns against us. Rain becomes hurricanes. Foods that are intended to nourish turn into carcinogens, and it all goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Instead of caring for and leading God's creation, which is what we were intended to do, instead, we hide behind fig leaves. And the fig leaves have changed. That's the only difference between Genesis 3 then and Genesis 3 now. They just look a little bit different. And that brings us back to the question this morning. Where are you? If you're Adam or you're Eve, where are you hiding? And why are you hiding? And do you see this morning that you can't hide from God? He will pursue you relentlessly, recklessly if necessary, to the ends of the earth because of his love and his grace for you. And so here's my encouragement. May you not only see today that you are Adam or that you are Eve, but may you stop and be found by God and turn to him rather than run. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are good. We need rescue. And we're grateful this morning that what the scriptures show us already by the third chapter of the Bible is that you come running for each one of us to find us. And so this morning, I pray that you would help each one of us, help us Adams, help us Eves who are here in the sanctuary to stop our running and instead to turn to you, to repent of the sin, to repent of the cover-up that we try to create in our lives and trust you by faith in your grace. We thank you that you died on a cross, you rose again on the third day to give us life. Forgive us of our sins, we pray. And we pray that you would not only be Lord in our lives today, but that you would be leader.